hey man before we get started i wanted to ask you uh you and heather had an anniversary recently right how how'd that go yeah uh it was fun we took a day and went to a little park close by and went to this butcher shop and got some meat we've heard a lot of like good things about it it's pretty fucking good meat i will say so definitely definitely worth the trip yeah the butcher shop you told me in that text didn't they get shut down a little while ago for like people meat like having human meat yeah but like it's fine it's it's delicious meat and we feel great i went out and pulled up a bunch of stumps in our backyard and uh wait, wait you pulled up stumps yeah yeah i feel like super strong and jazz now pretty great i'm growing all my hair back i'm in better shape than i was in high school so it's uh this meat tell you what it's something special man yeah you keep talking about the hunger no. the hunger yes yes this week we catch the hunger and become wendigos as we discuss 1999's ravenous hell yeah and so for those of you who don't know who we are 50 plus episodes later we're watching for dare a horror movie podcast hosted by yours truly the coward derek and my co-host aaron the movie monster boy in which we discuss the fears phobias and just how scary these movies are as well as social relevancy of horror movies throughout the ages and it's a podcast for both newbies and fanatics alike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And first time in a little while, it's just you and me again. Yep. After our string of Halloween episodes, I can't believe Halloween's already fucking over. Yeah. We're a couple of days out from the election, so who knows? Y'all might not ever hear this episode if <laughs> yeah. it's martial law hellscape and Trump refused to <laughs> accept the election results and streets are on fire and the MAGA Raiders are coming to get our guzzling. So we'll see. <laughs> and worshipping Ford <laughs> steering wheels and everything. Witness me. So yeah, with that, if you aren't for whatever reason a regular listener and you're just coming on on 51 episodes first of all uh, rate review subscribe and five stars us on itunes but beyond that uh we are gonna dive into our recommendations in which aaron and i talk about recent horror media that we've consumed that consume is a good way of putting it for this episode that doesn't have anything to do with the movie we're tackling today and it can be anything from books tv shows video games other movies um and we recommend it to each other in hopes that you our listeners hear something that you may want to check out as well so with all of that out of the way aaron what horror have you been getting into lately um so i've really only got 31 things to talk about but i'll talk about them pretty quickly (laughs) okay (laughs) first thing unrelated news just saw today john carpenter is putting out lost themes 3 so i'm excited about that that's coming out in february oh shit i'm gonna look that up right now while you're talking (laughs) i went ahead and pre-ordered that through sacred bones so i'm excited about that they have the first single out from that album we have mentioned it before but for those of you who missed that john carpenter hard director extraordinaire known for his scores as well he has excellent scores in his movies he has kind of had a second career resurgence doing music so he has a band with his godson and i believe his actual son yeah i think you're right they did now three albums called lost themes which are not actually lost themes it's just stuff that could be in a hypothetical john carpenter movie they really sound like they would fit in most carpenter movies yeah they're great they are excellent synthy instrumental metal atmospheric kind of scores but those first two albums are excellent i'm really hyped for the third one so that got announced um i pulled up the track list for the third 
third uh, one? Have you looked at the names of these songs? Nope. I literally just got an email from Sacred Bones today, and I was like, cool, click, bye. I know you have a lot of recommendations, but please let me just read through these track lists, because this is some great shit. Alive After Death, Weeping Ghost, Dripping Blood, Dead Eyes, Vampire's Touch, Cemetery, Skeleton, Turning the Bones, The Dead Walk, and Carpathian Darkness. (laughs) Yep, those are pretty great. It's very similar to the first two albums. Yep. Cool, good shit. So I've been light on my recommendations in the past couple of episodes because we've had guests on. And with us recording ahead of time, we weren't quite in the full swing of October. So I have been definitely watching a lot of stuff. So this is kind of a dump of the majority of what I have watched this past month. Some of this stuff is because podcasts that I listen to have covered these movies. So, okay, let me watch these movies so I can listen to the podcast. Some of it is stuff that I have bought and just not gotten around to watching yet. Some of it is just let me fill in some gaps. That and just comfort food. Rewatches on a few things, like I mentioned in the last couple of episodes. So, to start off, if this movie was doing their season of spoop thing as well, where they do like their seven word reviews, they had an episode on the Hammer Frankenstein cycle. So, I watched the first three in that series where Peter Cushing plays Dr. Frankenstein and it's kind of a different monster scenario in each one but it's definitely an episodic series where like oh gee whoops Dr. Frankenstein got caught at the end of this one but how's he gonna get out of this predicament for the next movie <laughs> Christopher Lee plays the monster in the first movie oh, it's a very yes. different looking Frankenstein than what you would normally expect but they're fun they're very baroque and over the top and floofy and brilliant so those are fun enough i also watched the devil rides out which this movie is right up your alley bro this is christopher lee as a very anton lavey styled occult expert who is trying to save this young protege of his from going down that same dark path and so it's this british occult high society demon shit and christopher lee is the hero and it's pretty rad there's like a full-blown goat man and like a giant tarantula and all kinds of shit in this movie. God damn, we just need to do that later on. Yeah, down the line. that's one that I think would be on our list later on down the line. It, it was definitely a lot of fun. Like I discussed with you, I rewatched Bones starring Snoop Dogg and Pam Greer and god damn was that movie fun. I haven't seen that movie since middle school or so. That's another one we're going to need to do down the line and it, uh, it's been years since yeah. I've seen it too. Ernest Dickerson, I've said it on the show before, I've written about it. Ernest Dickerson I think is one of the most underrated horror movie directors period I fucking love his Tales from the Crypt movie his work on The Walking Dead has always been excellent like all the big major episodes in Walking Dead early on were typically always directed by Ernest Dickerson so this movie is excellent it's super campy and ridiculous I mean it's fucking Snoop Dogg as a murdered 1970s pimp who is brought back to life by like a bunch of youngsters who were taking over his giant cathedral mansion that he lived in in downtown Detroit and turning it into a nightclub. And there's fucking evil dogs puking maggots at people, bad 2000 CGI. It is just 
over the top and ridiculous, but I had a fucking blast with it. It's one of those movies I caught probably at too young of an age. I think a lot of it went over my head as a kid, but I remember one of the things that kind of legit scared me was its idea on the afterlife yeah. of just bodies on top of bodies on top of bodies all stacked in like a wall. All of that soulscape hellverse stuff in that movie yeah. is really fucking cool looking. Yeah. Great practical special effects. There is some goofy CGI in this movie, but there's some really good practical effects in it too. Next, I watched both The Collector and The Collection, which I first thought, hey, these are very Saw ripoff. And then come to find out, oh, these were written and directed by the dude who did Saw's 4 through 7. <laughs> and this is apparently just a collection of really inventive over-the-top trap kills that he like didn't get to squeeze into those scripts. It's basically a guy who's trying to rob a house and then he realizes there's a way more sinister, fucked up creepy gimp mask guy in the house with him and he set all these crazy saw traps all over the house. The second movie picks up that same story but then you kind of end up going to the crazy guy's lair where there's all these traps and shit. They're very mean spirited and over the top and ridiculous and gory. They were entertaining. Aiming, I'll say. I found myself way more entertained with them than I did any of the Saw sequels so far, but they are definitely kind of cut from the same cloth, all said and done. Next, I watched the Vestron Blu-ray of Waxwork 1 and 2. Waxwork, I remember watching as a kid. It's fine. It's fun. It's kind of goofy and just, hey, let's do a bunch of very light monster scenarios and these different tableaus as all these teens get kind of trapped and then killed and whatever. I was kind of tripped out to see Dana, what's his name, from Twin Peaks, Bobby in it. Waxwork 2, I will say, I've never seen. I kind of had fun with that one. It is way more tongue-in-cheek goofy on purpose. Fucking Bruce Campbell is in it, and it's kind of the same idea where they're, like, traveling through time, but they're traveling through time via, like, different subgenres of horror. So there's one timeline where the girl character ends up in a very alien being hunted by some kind of xenomorphy thing on a space station and Zach Galligan from Gremlins is in a very British black and white hell house haunting kind of scenario. Fucking Bruce Campbell is in it just doing slapstick shit and getting hurt. They eventually end up in like a crazy fantasy timeline where the blonde giant tough guy from Die Hard is the villain. Definitely like not great movies but fun and goofy like I would say like put them on before putting on the next movie I would mention, which is Verotica, which is <laughs> fucking Glenn Danzig's horror movie from last year. And I only watched this because if this movie had a commentary track for it. I listened to the commentary track and even the commentary track just by itself was free. Oh, you hilarious. didn't even watch the movie? No, I haven't watched it yet. Oh God. <laughs> the movie is on Shudder. The best way I can describe it is it is literally The Room, but Glenn Danzig made it instead of Tommy Wiseau. Both weird looking guys with weird accents and like dark stringy hair making a movie that reveals way too much about their intersexual weird peccadilloes, but it's so bad. It's so incompetent. It's so tedious. It's so overly long. There's just long scenes of topless woman playing some Elizabeth Bathory kind of character bathing in like fake blood coming out of a model, but it goes on for like literally five minutes and this actress yeah. is just vamping the entire time like it's 
bad. So just listening to their commentary track, which I loved their ongoing joke of mother, tell your children <laughs> not to swim. Yeah, like, I got something to say. say. Yeah. Just listening to their commentary track, that movie just sounds like it was Danzig thinking he was making like this art house oh, it is, yes. horror, but really it's just basically softcore porn like the Emmanuel series that Worst Idea of All Time podcast is going through. It's basically, well, I can't say it's not porn without the porn because there is so much nudity in it but it's just bad like it's incompetently made the makeup and the special effects are terrible it's tedious i would only suggest watching it with the f this movie commentary going because it's just kind of a miserable slog otherwise from there i checked out a couple of arrow releases from the last couple of months that i was completely unaware of one is black rainbow which not horror very horror adjacent but very interesting premise drunk jason robards plays kind of an evangelical preacher using his daughter played by rosanna arquette who kind of has the gift she can see into the future and do predictions and all this kind of shit and it's the grift he just brings her around the country to these different churches to take advantage of these people and get their money but then like tom hulse is a reporter that's following them and turns out she does have these brilliant flashes of premonition from time to time and she kind of predicts this giant town disaster where a bunch of people die and it freaks out the town but then it happens right like there's weird shit kind of going on under the surface interesting and it does kind of have a little bit of a supernatural twist eventually don't go into it expecting just straight horror the entire time the other one was dream demon which is very british it's kind of like a peter jackson b-side girl has weird nightmare dreams about her like soon-to-be husband and these two paparazzi guys that are following her and this other girl kind of comes into her life and you eventually find out that they're like sisters long lost and it's kind of some freddy krueger energy a little bit but very british it was fine it's nothing that i think i would necessarily buy from arrow i got it digitally because it was three dollars but i wouldn't necessarily get a physical copy of it because i don't see myself watching it again necessarily from there i just watched some other trash like Candyman 3 which was fucking terrible i've never seen that one before <laughs> beyond the door which is like an italian exorcist kind of ripoff arrow also put that one out recently it was kind of like porn without the porn as well just bad italian acting and there wasn't much to that one i watched the wind which was a mestarakis movie with meg foster from they live and she's a thriller writer who goes to this greek island to write and then turns out there's weird killer stalking her and it's fucking like wings hauser i watched the sweet blood of jesus which is a spike lee riff on Ganja and Hess. I enjoyed it, but it was very much just Ganja and Hess via Pottery Barn. It's fine, but it was just a very pretty remake without a whole lot of substance to it. The original Ganja and Hess is great. If anybody wants a good black community culture experience-centered horror movie, that is certainly one to go to. It's got Dwayne Jones in it from the original Night of the Living Dead. Great, great movie. This is definitely kind of a pale imitation. As much as I do like Spike Lee, like this was just kind of an okay rehash of that story. I got my Friday the 13th box set from Shout Factory, which is 
amazing. I've been kind of slowly rewatching a lot of those with Heather. Um, so we watched Friday the 13th Part 4. We watched Part 2 the other night. We also watched Jason Goes to Hell, which is the ninth one where, you know, spoiler alert, there's essentially no Jason in that one. So that's been kind of fun going back and revisiting some of those. We watched Green Room again, which we've covered on this show for another one of Patrick Bromley's side podcasts that he just started with Heather Wixon, Craven Craven. They are going through Wes Craven's entire filmography, which I did realize we've not covered a Wes Craven movie thus far. We haven't. We really got to get on that. There is one in particular that I for sure know that we're going to do that we have a guest lined up for already, possibly in the spring. But otherwise, yeah, like there are two specifically that I really enjoy that I would like to cover. I mean, let's be honest, we're probably going to do a bit of Wes Craven yeah, through this yeah, show. Yeah. I'm just surprised we haven't done one yet. Yeah. But yeah, they're starting from the beginning of his filmography. So I rewatched Last House on the Left, which I love you guys. Like that's the only reason I'm watching this show is because when I hear Patrick and Heather talk about it, but... Uh, oof, I never want to watch that movie again. I will rewatch The Hills Have Eyes, which is slightly more fun and less brutal, <laughs> but still really fucking brutal and exploitative. Wes Craven definitely was kind of in that mode early on in his career. So, you know, that is what it is. But I haven't kind of moved on from there. I rewatched Altered States, Ken Russell, which that movie is fucking wild. And I remember watching that movie when I was younger, like in high school, and definitely in my drug phase and just being interested in like, everything to do with that kind of push your consciousness kind of bullshit so yeah for those that don't know altered states is about a group of scientists specifically william hurt who are exploring kind of the farthest realms of human experience through like isolation tanks and fucking ayahuasca shit and just full cellular regression back to primordial man kind of bullshit so stoner logic from college i'm guessing essentially yes but like way more terrifying the score in that movie is amazing. The special effects are crazy. The editing is bananas because it's fucking Ken Russell. I really, really dug it this time, like going back to it later in my life. I also rewatched Poltergeist 3, which I really do dig that sequel. The special effects in that one are pretty nuts. It's got some really good scares in it. The cast is great. So that was definitely enjoyable to rewatch. And then lastly, I have that Shout Factory Critters box set as well. So the other day when our internet was out, Heather and I rewatched Critters 2 and 3. I've seen Critters 2 a bunch growing up. That one is directed by Mick Garris. Is super, super fun. Definitely over the top and goofy. I haven't seen any of them at the time of this recording. Oh, really? Nope. Critters 1 is a legit classic, and then the sequels are kind of diminishing returns, yeah. We'll have to watch it. Critters 3 is the, like, film debut of Leonardo DiCaprio. So that's the one thing that Critters 3 has going for it. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. So that's all I have to talk about. I know that was a lot of shit to throw down but being that we've now exited Halloween season that's kind of the rundown of all the stuff that I have watched so far this month as I've had time so there you go your turn (laughs) (laughs) so uh, I am dipping into the realm of video games first game that I wanted to recommend and I'm surprised it took me this long to finally play it I'm only like two three hours into it right now is a game that was kind of overlooked back in 2018 and it turned out to be like kind of a horror underrated gem. It's called Remothered Tormented Fathers. Wait, what? It's called <laughs> Remothered Tormented Fathers. Okay. It's a 2018 survival horror game that was developed by actually an Italian video game studio. Um, and the game takes place in Italy.
digitally as well. It came out on PS4, Xbox, and PC. I think it's on Steam. I have the PS4 version. And it's basically a spiritual successor to the Clock Tower series from Capcom. And for those of you who don't know that series, that's also another excellent series of horror video games in which the whole idea is imagine those chase scenes and slasher flicks and you're the victim or the person who's in like that space trying to avoid the stalker is what they call them in these games okay basically in an invincible serial killer out to kill you and while you are kind of defenseless you have tools that can like distract the serial killer or stun them for a long enough time to let you get away and you can hide and you can craft traps and stuff and that's kind of the idea with remothered as well it's the gameplay is exactly like the clock tower series it's one of those things where we've talked about this about a couple movies we've covered including the beyond even speaking of italian horror is it's a game that you can kind of see the seams you can kind of see like it's a little rough around the edges whether it be the voice acting or like the synchronization of the character's lips moving with the english dub and like the graphics even though it's on ps4 and xbox one they are almost like borderline xbox 360 quality but just like those other movies there's something dangerous about this game and something where you can tell that while the budget wasn't as large as AAA like Resident Evil games even it seems extremely genuine and trying to really capture that horror spirit it's like a straightforward vision with no fucks given otherwise yeah basically yeah and like I said I'm only about two or three hours into it right now so this isn't giving away any spoilers but basically it takes place in the year 1992 and you play as this woman named Rosemary Reed and you're not really 100% sure who she is yet she's being mysterious on purpose and she arrives at this mansion in Italy of a Dr. Richard Felton. She comes under the pretense that she is a doctor from like a hospital or a treatment facility he was at that he left and she's there to like discuss his case because he has this incurable disease that he's suffering from and kind of during the interview she drops the act of being a doctor and starts accusing Dr. Felton of like what happened to his daughter Celeste. She is just kind of mysteriously disappeared and she basically gets kicked out of the mansion by him and his caretaker and then later on that night she sneaks back into the mansion and again this is all within like the first 30 minutes so this is not really any spoilers this is setting up the horror of the game you basically are trying to figure out what's going on in this mansion and solve the case and what happened to Celeste as this fucking unhinged Dr. Felton is stalking you trying to kill you with like a sickle and he is wearing nothing but like a butcher's apron so like he's butt ass naked but just only wearing a butcher's apron (laughs) sure he's chasing you around the mansion and like I said I'm not far enough into it yet to really get all the nuts and bolts of what this game is but the bit I've read about it leading up to it it's been on my radar for a while and now that I played like a a couple hours of it it really does seem genuine I feel like the themes it's going to get into are really messed up and I can't wait to see where it goes again I know we've described this about other movies there's just something dangerous feeling about this horror game where they really are just they took their shot and it paid off like this game is has been relatively well praised now unfortunately the sequel to it just came out this past couple weeks ago and the sequel was rushed out and has a ton of bugs in it and they're like patching the shit out of it as we speak and of course it was received as a disappointment because of how buggy it was I don't know the validity of this but I've heard that there was a possibility that they were bucking for it to come out too early to beat the other rush of horror games that just came out like the new amnesia game and all of that so they didn't have to compete with it and also to avoid competing with cyberpunk which at this time 
has also been delayed again to December. I don't feel like it would be competing with Cyberpunk just because those are very different things. Yeah. But sure. But yeah, so apparently the sequel is both the prequel and a sequel at the same time. So I am excited to eventually play that one once all the bugs have been patched out. Unfortunately, we in the era of video games we live in, you just have to deal with a lot now. But sure. this game has been out for almost three years now. Uh, it'll be three years old this January. I mean, I'm definitely not as much of a gamer as you are, but the one game I remember like really feeling that same like this is kind of fresh and like maybe a little bit dangerous was Amnesia that you mentioned a second ago. Yeah. Like, I remember that being like a big deal. Yeah. Get somebody who's never played that game, even if they're not a video game person, just sit them down in a dark room with headphones on and make them play that game yeah. and just watch reactions. That game is dread inducing and works really well. And again, it's also a game that even at the time it came out didn't have the best graphics. Yeah. It felt very visceral, yeah. but it worked so damn well. I am excited to play the new Amnesia that came out for PS4. It's a digital release only called Amnesia Rebirth. It just came out a week or two ago. So that's another one. If you like the Amnesia franchise, you should check that one out. But uh, I will play that one eventually. But Remothered Tormented Fathers is really good if you haven't played it already. And if you like the first game a lot, which a lot of people seem to, you may want to wait a little while on the sequel, which is called Remothered Broken Porcelain, because apparently they really need to patch some stuff out of that. So yeah, Remothered Torment Fathers, another game is probably one that kind of went under some people's radars too. And honestly, it was not really on my radar until I just kind of randomly said fuck it and bought it on a <laughs> on a sale on my Switch. It's called Lovecraft's Untold Stories. Basically, this is kind of like a top-down shooter, almost like a twin-stick shooter. Think kind of like Hotline Miami style. If you've, you've played that right, Aaron, Hotline Miami. No, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, but it's a roguelite game that also actually has a story to it. Thankfully, there's not permadeath in it like other roguelike games have, but you play a detective and he gets called to the mansion and, you know, Lovecraft's set up. He gets called to a mansion. He starts exploring this mansion, starts getting attacked by cultists and otherworldly monsters. His sanity starts getting tested. There's actually is a sanity mechanic in the game where, like, if you start losing too much sanity, your character will actually start talking to himself. And then if it goes too far on, he'll eventually commit suicide. And it's kind of jarring, even though the graphics are pretty pixelated. It's a fun shooter. Like, it's not like anything that I would say is break the bank, go out and seek right now. But it's a fun, like, Cthulhu-esque romp that okay. seems to be made by people who are fans of the work. I have only played a few hours of it. I am a couple chapters into the detective story, but apparently when you beat the story of one character, it unlocks the next, and there are like four or five characters to play through. It's challenging, but fair. It's not quite Dark Souls frustrating challenge. Like, it's definitely easily beatable, and depending on what items you discover and buy, like, if you can survive for a while, it makes the game pretty easy. Like I said, if you do die, there's not really any permadeath kind of thing. It doesn't really punish you quite as harshly as other roguelite games do, and a lot of the creature designs and everything are pretty faithful to what they are when you think Cthulhu, but the graphics are pretty fun from like a top-down pixelated sprite Super Nintendo-esque style game. Yeah, it just seems like it was made with a lot of love for the, the stuff that it's based off of, so I just figured I'd throw that one out. Okay. And then the last thing I wanted to recommend is not a game, and it's not even a horror thing, but it is something that tackles a lot of horror and anxieties that we have lived through, and maybe even a couple of our listeners are going through right now. It's a show on Hulu called 
Pen15, and it's a cringe comedy television series created by an actress named Maya Erskine and another actress named Anna Conkle. And the whole premise of the show is that Maya and Anna play the 13-year-old versions of themselves. Apparently, it's semi-based off of like what they went through during their middle school years. Okay. And it's them as adults playing their 13-year-old self, but everyone else around them are actual 13-year-olds that they've cast like in the roles. Oh. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard of this. Okay. It is fucking hilarious. It's very cringe comedy, but it is very funny. Maya and Anna are really damn good at portraying 13-year-olds living in 2000, because it takes place in the year 2000, like August 2000, the start of middle school. So right around the time we were in middle school, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah, because I think I was starting sixth grade at this time, and I think you were starting, what, seventh, eighth grade? Yeah. The first episode is their first day of seventh grade, and it's them, like, trying to fit in, and and they're basically 13-year-old outcasts. And it's just so damn funny because them being adults, they play it straight, even down to their physical acting. They just do such a good job of being 13 again to the point where like it's hard to really tell that they're actual adults because they still look a lot like their 13-year-old selves. Sure. Like the way that the costuming is superb, their physical acting is superb, and just the way they talk, it captures that 2000-era 13-year-old. And the whole thing is, you know, 13-year-old's struggling with one day being the best day of your life and then one embarrassing thing can like cost you like your quote-unquote popularity in sure. school and at the same time everyone is thinking they're like these hypersexual totally like know exactly what's going on <laughs> kids yeah. but no one knows a damn thing and we're all lying about it this is some bringing it down to fucking earth real hard anxiety yeah. shit yeah there were so many times where i was stopping and being like this is exactly how this happened when i was in sixth and seventh grade sure but yeah like you know that idea of when you're like going to sleep right now and as you're about drifting off to sleep you just think of something really stupid and embarrassing you did when you yeah. were like 12 or 13 and all that 20 year old anxiety like bubbles up into you to the point where like you want to text this person you haven't talked to in like 15 years <laughs> yeah. and be like remember when you were a dick to me for this and like this and that that's exactly the type of anxieties I was feeling. It's both a nostalgic trip, but also just a very like, yeah, you feel the cringe and the cringe comedy yeah. with this. And just a lot of anxiety behind. You're still very much a child and treated like a child, but then also expected to be an adult in some situations. And also like you're trying to figure out your own sexuality. It's a reminder of just how fucking terrifying and terrible kids are to each other. <laughs> yeah. And just how you got through that and really you got through it by being yourself and through like the couple of really good friends who had your back the whole way yeah totally. at the core of this show so far is like friendship them being best friends and both of them kind of being social awkward outcasts and even when they butt heads against each other at the end of the day like they're best friends and they love each other and they get through it together it's such a fucking good show but man there is a lot of anxiety behind it too so i had to throw it out there on our show season two just dropped on hulu i'm still on season one i'm glad that my Maya and Anna are finding success with the show and I really would love to see it continuing because it, it's a fun premise and it's just funny. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and discuss our movie. So, like I mentioned, this week we are going to be covering Ravenous, which is a frontier cannibal survival horror thriller satire dot 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 so yeah we're going to be covering that this week directed by antonia bird you know not that long ago i couldn't do that 
Could barely take a breath without coughing up a pint of blood. Tuberculosis. That along with uh, fierce headaches, depression, suicidal ambition. I was in pretty horrible shape. In fact, I was on my way to a sanatorium to convalesce, more likely to die. When en route, this Indian scout told me a curious story. A man eats the flesh of another. He steals his strength. He absorbs the other man's spirit. Well, I just had to try. Aaron, my homeboy, my dog, my bro, is every cannibal horror movie like low-key kind of a masterpiece? <laughs> like, okay, I, I don't want this to turn to another Tremors thing of <laughs> masterpiece, what is it, what isn't, but like between Raw and then this, the two cannibal horror movies we've covered, this was fucking good, and it was not what I expected, and it was so good. They can be. I have definitely seen a lot of bad cannibal movies, I will say. So I, I think I'm kind of curating our show a little bit more right but otherwise yeah like this is definitely one of the better ones that i feel like is more and more getting the appreciation that it deserves so i'm definitely glad that you enjoyed this one i was kind of curious to see like what your reaction would be all said and done yeah and aaron and i were talking about this off mic a little bit too but it was something i specifically wanted to bring up while we're recording is it's not the tone you're expecting it to be because me going into it just knowing it's 1999 western horror movie about a cannibal or cannibalism you explained the basic premise to me but you did such a good job of explaining it to me here and that like i really went into this thinking i was gonna see like a really dark gritty drama that turns really messed up and maybe it was my brain because of the witch that idea of oh it's a period piece and it's in like this fucking frozen tundra wasteland out in like northern california during the 1800s it's going to be like really serious gritty and dark it's gonna be bleak yeah yeah, yeah, very bleak. And it is not. Like, right off the bat, the tone is extremely jarring. Now, granted, it's not quite a knight's tale where it's technically taking place, but haha, tongue-in-cheek, you know, we're very modern with a lot of this stuff. But it is a little bit of that entertainment value is up front, which I wasn't expecting. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's mostly because the score is a little anachronistic. The score is partially Michael Nyman, which, I mean, he's done stuff like all the Peter Greenaway movies and the piano and Gattaca and stuff like that. So he's more of a traditional avant-garde musician who has done some movie scores mostly for artsy shit. And then you have fucking Damon Albarn from Blur and Gorillaz. The woohoo guy. Right? The song too guy yeah doing yeah. some of that stuff as well but there being an electronic tape loop edge to some of it it's minimalist yeah it's very minimalist of just taking a couple notes and looping it several times but that electronic sound is anachronistic it's not yeah. like you mentioned knight's tale where it's like straight up fucking queen in this movie with the characters diegetically singing it but it's got a kind of specific feel to it and the humor is very like it's dark humor, but it feels maybe a little modern as well. But otherwise, everything is gritty frontier movie. It definitely has a texture of that kind of movie. Like, you feel the cold and the mud and the wet and, like, just bleh of it. It's perfect for this time of the year because yes. here where I am right now, it was actually starting to snow, but not quite enough to, like, actually have it set on the ground, but just enough to, like, make it just cold and frigid, but also slushy 
muddy. It's a good one yeah. for this time of the year, for sure. Yeah, and like going back to the score, yeah, it's like Appalachian folk, but mixed in with a film score that has like this minimalisticness to it. I think you were talking about Nyman being avant-garde. There is a lot of avant-garde to it as well. And at times the score can be very unsettling. And then other times the score made me laugh out loud at a scene in particular yeah. that I'm going to bring up <laughs> when we do our, our plot run through. But yeah, it caught me off guard. But the movie, not even just from the soundtrack standpoint, just the movie from the get-go. And I, I don't want to jump the gun too much till we like do more background on it. But just like the opening scenes, just the tone and the way it's shot and the dialogue. I went in expecting The Witch, but more of the Western version of that. And instead I got this and it wasn't what I was expecting, but it's what I got and what I got was pretty awesome. But yeah, let's dig a little background into the movie. So, like I mentioned, the movie was directed by Antonia Bird, but she was not the first director to be attached to this project. So I heard there were even like rewrites at the time of shooting and everything. Yeah, so this movie definitely had kind of a rough production. Antonia Bird is most known for her TV-related stuff, I would say. She started off in theater. She did everything you can imagine on the theater side of the world. She moved into doing UK TV did a lot of that she really only has four actual movies she has a movie called priest mad love and then a movie called face which i have seen before i I watched it a few years back when i was kind of going on a british crime trip did not realize she directed it though and then she kind of got fed up with the movie system scene etc and went back to doing tv before she died in 2013 so this movie is kind of an anomaly because it's arguably her best known movie maybe even her best known work overall at this point and it's kind of her soul horror related thing well and that sucks because i was gonna say like a lot of horror movies at the time it wasn't well received it was received at like average yeah it definitely wasn't a financial success and the reviews were pretty mixed but it's definitely one of those that like people are going back to now and reassessing I mean, it's you know 20 years later obviously but um, I'm glad that people are starting to finally pick up on it the film was originally going to be directed by Milcho Menchevsky but he was removed three weeks into the production because of just constant budget and schedule disputes with the producers he had directed directed like very artsy Albanian dramas and stuff like that. Producer Laura Ziskin literally like went to set with Raja Gosnell in tow, who was the replacement director that she had handpicked. And after just a few days, the cast literally fucking mutinied <laughs> against this <laughs> replacement director. And to give you an idea, Raja Gosnell, the only movie that he had under his belt at this point, like he had done other stuff music videos and commercials and things like that but the only movie he had under his belt at this point was home alone 3 oof (laughs) and he would go on to do big mama's house scooby-doo beverly hills chihuahua the smurfs movies oh god not the fit for this movie right no and i was talking about this with heather and imagine your first movie being a direct to video home alone sequel that's arguably shot mostly on a studio set with some exteriors at an actual house in a neighborhood okay cool going to the fucking mountain 
mountains of Slovakia and the Czech Republic and Mexico and dealing with weather and dealing with rugged terrain and dealing with probably a mostly foreign crew and then dealing with artsy character actor people on a tight budget, on a tight schedule. Like, that's a lot of production challenges. And granted, Antonia Bird had directed three movies before this, so she didn't have like an insane amount of experience in the movie side of it, but she had been doing TV for fucking years and she came from theater so she knew how to work with actors more so at the end of the day Robert Carlyle kind of suggested Antonia Bird because she was his business partner in the theater side of things I think they had a production company together from what I read Um, and he had worked with her on her two earlier movies Priest and Face so that seemed like a good like hey I have a qualified replacement that I can put forward right and even then Antonia Bird had issues with how the production and the schedule was being run because the production company and the producers were apparently just a nightmare to work with either way but you know she also was just not happy with the final cut of the film as well like the producers added elements like a voiceover and just the cut of the movie wasn't quite what she wanted either so I'm curious to know like what her original vision of this movie would have been would it have been more dramatic would that kind of weird dark humor tone not be there or would it have been more of that you know like I'm I'm interested to know like what could have been with this movie just as a before and after kind of comparison. The score, like I mentioned earlier, was Michael Nyman and Stephen Albarn, and the score is definitely interesting. And this movie is chock full of character actors. I mean, it's just nothing but character actors top to bottom. So that was definitely something that's enjoyable to go back to, you know, in the aftermath. And something I was reading about, and you kind of touched on this earlier, was Bird herself was talking about how, like, the studio space they were given at certain points was not ideal at all, and that the scheduling they would set up for the shoot was downright manipulative, I think is what I read her quoted as saying. One of the screenwriters, again, was at the shooting doing constant rewrites while they were still shooting scenes and stuff so it is kind of amazing this movie turned out as well as it did given like such a problematic production yeah definitely and as far as the soundtrack goes i wanted to ask you this have you listened to this soundtrack by itself like have you gone back and put on this film score as like just an album because i'm wondering how much i would like it as a soundtrack on its own because i think it's a phenomenal soundtrack but i think it's a phenomenal soundtrack because of the movie it's going hand in hand with it's half and half so this is not a collaboration between nyman and albarn like they've explicitly said yeah we wrote stuff independently of each other i didn't know that yeah they didn't <laughs> like work together necessarily so i wouldn't say that the score is half good as a standalone thing for like one person's stuff or another right. it's kind of half and half in general you know some of each person's stuff is definitely jammable like off to the side of the movie and then the other half is just kind of atmospheric score stuff that's not necessarily enjoyable to listen to so it's it's a little bit of both yeah another thing i like about this movie and this is always interesting with movies kind of dealing with the past like this the satire in this movie i really like the entire idea of assessing america's manifest destiny idea and looking at it through the eyes of a cannibal yeah and considering like what that really means and the fact that you are consuming another living thing and essentially gaining its power whether that is a person or tribe 
tribes or animals or resources or whatever like the whole manifest destiny idea of I'm going to take this land you know these people and use this to better myself specifically like I'm going to consume the power to become this modern godhead and create a new culture dominion of my own and you know essentially like forge this nation under my own image like that whole notion is really interesting to me yeah to the point where like literally in a speech comparing it to moving out west and like how america slowly moved out west as if it's quote-unquote consuming the land as it's going yeah and it's interesting too because in certain scenes specifically more in the beginning but i caught it throughout the movie here and there like seeing the american flag purposely placed in the background of a lot of scenes in juxtaposition to like people literally like consuming a meal together yeah so i don't think it's trying to hide its commentary on that but again it goes back to the point you just raised if it was strictly just Antonia Bird's vision. Would we get that satire or would it just be like... Or more of it. Or more of it. Or like, yeah. or would we get the black comedy nature of that satire is rather what I meant. Would there be even any comedic value to it? Or would it be bleak but also satirical at the same time critiquing that idea of manifest destiny? The other thing that I find interesting too is just the notion that in this new dominion that these men are wanting to essentially carve out for themselves, there is that that very subjective lack of respect for or need for traditional norms and morality you know and that's definitely something that they talk about as well just the concept of morality and what is good and what is bad and is what we are doing good or bad or taboo just because society says it is what if this is the purest form of human nature and we are actually experiencing that and we are actually this kind of pure expression of humanity because we are just fully giving in to this way of living instead of hiding behind like a facade that entire idea and getting into like the Nietzsche bullshit of this movie which the movie literally opens with that Nietzsche quote and then you know the reply to that which was just eat me (laughs) yeah yeah eat me unknown (laughs) yeah that whole notion I think is super interesting as well that the movie definitely has more on its mind than just let's have a bunch of people kill and eat each other the trope that i love about cannibalism is the sophisticated cannibal who becomes beast-like when it's time to turn that on but can also turn it off and it wasn't that it was unsophisticated and raw but we didn't see that almost hannibal lecter level of cannibal sophistication like we do in this movie like you're dealing with teenagers yeah teenagers dealing with teenagers who are essentially experimenting like you would experiment with drugs or your sexuality or whatever but it's very much the opposite of something like texas chainsaw where it is yeah. just the most abject gross this is literally a non-human level of existence this is the height of human expression essentially is this version of cannibalism that we yeah. see in robert carlisle well and while i love texas chainsaw massacre and it is one of the best horror movies best movies ever made i, I don't like the like obvious cannibal trope as much the one where it's just like they are bestial they are horrific they are inhuman the one that I find more terrifying and more effective and just more enjoyable is again going back to the sophisticated cannibal and even just like even with Raw like even though they were teenagers and they weren't like these well-versed men they were still acting like teenagers in a lot of other ways and it wasn't obvious at all that they were cannibals until like that switch is flicked same with this movie because the villain in this movie you know there are times where he is acting straight up like a predator but then there's a lot of other times where 
he is almost like Hannibal Lecter. He's just very well-spoken. He's almost charming in this really sadistic way. And that kind of cannibal, the one that like knows it's a monster, accepts it's a monster, but still dresses well. Yeah. There's something about that trope that I just love. I will say like this movie has probably one of my new favorite villains in not only just horror movies, but movies in general. Because, yeah. oh boy, was he great. Robert Carlyle's great. In Robert this movie, Carlyle yeah. fucking brings the thunder in this movie. And the ends too, where he's clean cut in the fucking military uniform and just puts the fucking cross of blood on his forehead. Yeah. Is just such a good fucking villain look. And it was such a WWE entrance, like, let's <laughs> get ready to rumble, bitch. Like, yeah. that bit was fantastic. So while we're on the subject of the horrors that this movie has on display, we've already touched on it with, like, the idea of Manifest Destiny and obviously cannibalism is is the big one a lot of satire on america consumerism is what i got specifically like that beginning scene with all of them eating the bloody steaks and like him having this flashbacks flashbacks yeah Yeah, like what what other horrors do you think this movie really like kind of touches on um you know i won't claim to take credit for this certainly but i've also not heard a lot of people talk about this movie one thing that i get from this movie that i kind of would like to hear a more qualified take on certainly is I feel like there are definitely some homoerotic themes in this movie and there is kind of a very specific relationship going on between Robert Carlyle and Guy Pierce in this movie and you definitely get a sense that there is like a bromance between the two of them like they have found this common thing that links the two of them together and you kind of have this push-pull relationship between the two of them and it's very much kind of that thing where like there is a different level of power and access and sophistication and experience between them that kind of puts their relationship at an imbalance that is something that like I'm kind of curious to hear a more qualified opinion on certainly but that's definitely like a vibe that I get out of this movie as well you know Robert Carlyle is pushing Guy Pierce. be like me do this thing that I do experience this thing that I have in my life that like I know you could get so much out of and if you would just open yourself up to this idea we could live a life together like we could conquer this frontier together and there's very much that like desire to have a partner in this and to have a friend or like just some kind of connection and that kind of comes out at the end too where you know they're specifically talking about like being a cannibal's lonely what are you going to do you're breaking all the taboos and social norms just by doing this thing but then also everybody around you is a potential meal so you know how do you keep friends how do you keep relationships etc Robert Carlyle is just desperately looking for like someone else to do this with and to experience this with and he sees Guy Pierce as that potential partner to the point where like the movie literally ends with the two of them on top of each other clenched in the jaws of this bigger mouth essentially Like, it's a very interesting vision at the very end, seeing these two men embracing each other, essentially, in the mouth of a bigger thing. In the mouth of the frontier, I guess you could say. I can show you unsurmountable levels of pain and pleasure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, definitely kind of that Cenobite thing. But that's another part of the texture of this that I like as well, that there's definitely a lot more going on under the surface. You can read a lot into this movie. Um, Or you can just kind of enjoy it as a surface level 
whole survival horror kind of thing. Just as a horror movie, just plain and simple, it's a pretty dark movie, and it's pretty effective in its horror. Again, not jump scare heavy, but there are some jump scares here and there, but it's mostly just the cannibal jumping out at someone suddenly. It's much more tonal. There's a lot of dread, yeah. Yeah, and dread. It's not as gory as other movies we've covered, funny enough, being that it's about cannibalism, but it's gory enough to be unsettling. It's very frank gore i'll say that yeah almost the point where like sometimes when they would show blood gushing out of someone it almost looked like watered down ketchup and i wondered if they did that on purpose either they actually used corn syrup or watered it down or something or they made it look like that on purpose just treat everyone like a hamburger in the movie uh i don't know i i definitely think that the makeup and the special effects in this are really solid no they are like i didn't mean that as okay, a okay, shot okay. i thought that was very purposeful but otherwise like the gore is pretty on point honestly this didn't really even feel like 1999 to me like the only thing that kind of really stood out to me in quality was that the version i was watching looked like it didn't have the hd like gloss of paint over it it looked like it was still from the 90s i'll say i have the shout factory blu-ray of this and even it it's not the greatest quality necessarily i think their transfer is really good i just don't think that the movie will ever like look amazing because it was shot fast and cheap. I honestly thought it was part of, I hate to use the word charm, but part of like the feeling and tone of the movie, I thought was like the little bit of grittiness to the quality to it. Yeah, it does have a slightly timeless quality to it because it is a period movie. So it's always going to be set out of time a little bit in that sense. So as you can tell that there's some deeper context there, but on the surface level deals a lot with cannibalism and gore and consuming people. So if that's what makes you squeamish and everything, you may want to avoid this one because the gore and some of the cannibalism is pretty front and center it's not implied but that doesn't really bother you too much more like me supernatural jump scares that kind of stuff bothers you then this is a perfect horror movie for you even starter horror movie for you and this like a couple others we've covered in the past is a good one to do if you are trying to get into horror and want to have like a deeper cut in the bag like i don't want to say like this is like the deepest of cuts but it's one that has been overlooked looked it's one that i wasn't aware of until aaron brought it to my attention and it's one that if you bring up in a conversation with people who are really into horror movies they might be a little impressed with you uh, for knowing this one and appreciating it but yeah so cannibalism bro that's the horror you're dealing with i give it thumbs up in terms of the horror and aaron thinks you should watch every horror movie because he's a fucking monster he wants me to watch hill house still and i still refuse because that looks way too scary (laughs) All right, cool, cool. Let's kind of run through and discuss the plot in the cast. The film opens in 1847 during the Mexican-American War, uh, where we see 2nd Lieutenant John Boyd being commended for his actions during a battle. He has a difficult time watching all the men at the table eating their bloody red meat at this celebration. And I love that, like, they all just have this giant identical ribeye on their plates. It looks like it was still fucking mooing on the fucking plate. Oh, man, that's how I want my... It looks rare as shit. And again, we we talked about it earlier, but the movie kind of starts off almost patriotic, but in a little bit of a skewed way. And then it goes into like this ceremony. You kind of see the writing on the wall right off the top because like as Boyd is staring at the stake, he's having flashbacks. Basically, he's having PTSD. He's like reliving the trauma and you're seeing what he's seeing like in these flashbacks during a battle, like him freezing up and having a ton of anxiety and, and stuff. John Boyd is played by Guy P. 
Pierce. This might be the first time I think we've covered Guy Pierce, I think. Yeah, I think this is the first movie we've done with him. Guy Pierce, been in a ton of stuff. Adventures of Priscilla Queen of the Desert, LA Confidential, Memento, Count of Monte Cristo, The Proposition, which is a fucking western that I love that you need to watch. Factory Girl, Hurt Locker, The Road, Animal Kingdom, The King's Speech, Lockout, Prometheus, Lawless, Iron Man 3, The Rover, Alien Covenant, and most recently Bloodshot. He's been in a ton of shit. I have a feeling that this might have been the movie that kind of put him on the radar to possibly play Batman. Because there was that time in like 2000, 2001, 2002 where there was all the talk about him being the next Batman. I vaguely remember that. It was around about the time that Darren Aronofsky was kind of doing a weird completely revisionist version of year one. I think that was also somebody else was developing like a Batman movie around that same time too. I wouldn't be surprised if this was the movie that kind of put him on the radar for that. Guy Pierce to me has always been one of those people where like he is an A actor, but he seems like one of those people that was just always been on the cusp of being an A plus Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise. Yeah. He just seems like just slight step down from that in terms of stardom. But like, I don't quite understand why, because he, he honestly, in a lot of movies I've seen him in is a better actor than some of the A plus actors that are around but that's just me i love him in la confidential by the way yeah he's great in la confidential like he's really good in a very specific handful of his movies where he's doing something different i think if i'm being honest like he's very generic white guy british and so that kind of doesn't help him stand out a ton and his roles that he's most well known for are roles where he's really doing something different but overall like he is definitely somebody that i enjoy as well so i I like having him pop up and stuff he's a good actor and pretty much anything i've seen him in yeah also in this opening scene we meet his superior general slauson who kind of confronts him after this dinner about his real actions during this battle which he kind of alludes to when we learn more about later um, and exiles him to fort spencer which is high in the sierra nevadas in california so this is backwoods middle of fucking nowhere frozen tundra post yeah (laughs) Yeah. it's it's a punishment like it's a punishment masked in that kind of military passive aggressive fuck you yeah like you're a hero your quote-unquote reward is is being moved to this military post yeah you're getting a bump up in the ranks but have fun at your new post general slauson is played by john spencer he was in war games the protector presumed innocent sea of love black rain the rock copland he is most well known for the west wing this was his last film role and after this movie he went on to be one of the main stars of the west wing and literally did that full time until he died in 2000 so that's kind of the main thing that he is known for but he is one of those character actors that you would recognize his face if you saw him clean shaven and in this movie he's got like you know your traditional long hair and beard everyone in this movie even the minor characters you recognize them yeah Yeah. as someone who grew up in the 90s and early 2000s there's pretty much a face you're always going to recognize even if you can't quite like name the person yeah so Boyd arrives at the fort being led by a First Nations woman named Martha he has another flashback once he gets there where we see that essentially the hot water he's in is that he played dead during a battle you literally see him like in the midst of this crazy battle during the mexican-american war and he just kind of gets down on the ground closes his eyes and acts dead and then the flashback kind of ends so that's really what happened is he essentially was 
commended for his actions, but it was all born out of cowardice, essentially. Well, and I, I took it as it wasn't so much even just straight up cowardness. I just took it as he was shell shocked in the moment, like, and he just didn't know what to do. And it was one of those things where, like, you get so overcome by anxiety and panic that you just shut down. Sure. Yeah, and, yeah, like, yeah. kind of like what we said at the end of The Witch, where she, like, kind of just wanders into her house and, like, puts her head down on the table and falls asleep. That's the way I took it for him, is his body couldn't cope, so he just literally laid down. Yeah. So that said, once he arrives there, he also meets the commander of the fort, Colonel Hart, and then kind of all the other fuck-ups that are staffing this fort. And this is a smorgasbord of (laughs) some great character actors, by the way. Yeah, I really do like scenes like this, where, I mean, it's hacky, but this kind of round table intro to all the characters, where you're just kind of getting a one-line description of all of them, is still something that I kind of love in movies like this. It was great in this movie. Movies where it blows is like, Suicide Squad. Here's their music cue, and here we're gonna flash their name on there. Like, no, no, no. He does it in dialogue. It's very to the point. And he's like, yeah. well, here's private so and so, and then it gives like one brief descriptor that kind of tells you a lot of at least what you need to know about that character, and then it flashes to that character for a couple seconds, showing them in their usual state of mind. Which my favorite is the flash to Neil McDonough, just screaming, he's just like. <laughs> The soldier, and then it's just him, like, naked in a frozen river, like, ah, yeah. flexing and screaming. Yeah, so. <laughs> that shit's great. By the way, Neil McDonough, just, I love seeing him in anything he pops up in. I love that yeah. guy. So, real quick to kind of go down the list of people. Colonel Hart is played by Jeffrey Jones. He was in Amadeus, Transylvania 65,000. Most people know him from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, where he is the principal. Howard the Duck, Beetlejuice, Hunt for Red October, Mom and Dad Save the World, Ed Wood. Here's our Batman the Animated Series for this episode. He was in the episode A Bullet for Bullock, where it looks like he played twins, I guess. He was also in The Crucible, The Devil's Advocate, Sleepy Hollow, and Deadwood. And just as a disclaimer, Jeffrey Jones is a uh, registered sex offender who got into some hot water in the early 2000s. I didn't know this. What? (laughs) Uh, That happens quite often where you find out, oh yeah, this actor that I've seen in a million things growing up turns out they're awful so just you know fyi on that i guess man that fucking bums me out because i liked him in this movie yeah man he's generally (laughs) a likable character actor in everything he shows up in just he's apparently a fucking scumbum in real life that's that's a punch in the gut i can't believe you put this on me as we're recording well i i think people deserve to be yeah aware. no that, that yeah i'm glad you brought that up because i had no idea yeah i won't say that we are going to completely just not ever cover stuff that has let's just say like controversial people involved there's some things that we might not touch on wholesale but he is a element of this larger movie with a lot of other like hard-working good people in it so right. it is what it is yeah from there we have Private Tuffler who is described as being like religious pious characters played by Jeremy Davies from Spanking the Monkey Twister Saving Private Ryan CQ Secretary Solaris Dogville Helter Skelter Manderley Lost Hannibal Justified Twin Peaks A Return where he's in it for like all of two minutes what I know him from and love him in is Dickie Bennett in Justified he was 
top notch as Dickie Bennett. And second thing I know him from is he recently did motion capture and voice work for Balder, the villain in the new God of War, like the newest God of War game back from 2018. Oh, okay. He is also phenomenal in that video game. He also, another weird thing I saw him in a couple of years ago, I watched Justice League Dark, um, one of the DC animated movies. Because while I've been making fun of the DC movies, the DCU, the DC animated movies are usually pretty top notch. Justice League Dark dropped in 2017 and he voices one of the main characters in that. The current state of DC is fucking aggravating but i so fucking wish they would let del toro do his justice league dark movie he was developing that and planning that out for a while and that would totally be my fucking bag yeah you could get that off the ground justice league dark for those that don't know is the supernatural team DC horror supernatural kind of character so it's like fucking constantine and swamp thing and satana and dead man yeah it's cool it's like a wild chunk of people yeah it's it's a really good idea for a team yeah from there we have private Reich, who is described as the soldier, again, Neil McDonough just screaming in a river. Neil McDonough has been in a lot of stuff, and one of my favorite descriptions of Neil McDonough to this day is in one of the, it might have been the first episode of Till Death Do Us Blart. About fucking Paul Blart Mall Cop 2, yeah. Uh, I Paul Blart Mall Cop 2, because Neil McDonough is the bad guy in that movie as well, and Justin McElroy specifically says that it makes me sad to see Neil McDonough because he's actually good and really good in this movie, and it's a bad movie, but if I got really sad about Neil McDonough acting really well in an otherwise bad movie I'd get sad a lot because Neil McDonough (laughs) is the type of actor who doesn't say no to things yeah he is in some of the best of the best and he is in some of the worst of the worst the thing I fucking love about Neil McDonough is he brings his A game to every project he's in no matter how shitty it is yeah I mean that's what you gotta do when you're a working actor they constantly talk about in uh, Till Death Do a Sport almost like every year how the bad guy Vincent and the movie is one of the only glowing parts of that movie because Neil McDonough can't help himself in being a good actor. Yeah. Speaking of good stuff he's been in, he was in Dark Band. That's apparently his first credit. He was in Angels in the Outfield, Star Trek First Contact, Minority Report, Walking Tall, Flags of Our Fathers. He's Dum Dum Dugan in Captain America the First Avenger. He was also in Justified. He was in 1922, which is a Stephen King movie for Netflix a while back. And he is going to be in the Resident Evil reboot that is about to start filming. So As William Birkin, which is pretty good casting, the thing that I think I first ever saw him in was Band of Brothers. Yes. He was in like eight or nine episodes of that. I forgot about putting that one down. Yeah, he, he was a pretty big role in that one too. But like I said, he's done a lot and not all of it's the best, but he is always <laughs> good in what, everything he's doing. Yeah. From there, we have the drunk doctor named Knox, played by Steven Spinella. He was in Virtuosity, Jackal, Milk, Lincoln, tons of TV stuff. Martha, who I mentioned a second ago, played by Sheila Towsey. She was in Thunderheart, Silent Tongue, Lord of Illusions, which I fucking love. That's one that we're going to do sooner or later. She was on the X-Files, Law & Order. We also have the druggy Private Cleaves. <laughs> played oh. by david arquette which yeah baby <laughs> i don't know why david arquette is always the third build in this fucking movie like there are three characters shown on the blu-ray disc for this movie and he is one of them i can tell and you quite why often he's like the third build and i think it's just because he was popping at the time or something i can tell you why because he's fucking david arquette baby oh my like, god I, as soon as i saw him and it was yeah. immediately i was like there's no way in fucking hell this guy 
guy makes it through this whole movie alive. <laughs> like, no fucking way. Yeah. He was in the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie, yep. Airheads. He's in all the Scream movies. He's Deputy Dewey. Yeah. Ready to Rumble, which is right up your alley. I'm sure you've probably seen it. I've seen it, yep. yep, um, yep. Eight-Legged Freaks, Riding the Bullet, Bone Tomahawk, uh, which is, weirdly enough, another Frontier cannibal movie. Um, and then he was most recently in the Creep Show TV series for Shudder. Some interesting things about him, too, is he has actually gotten into wrestling. Like, he yeah. actually became a wrestler because he's always been a fan. And granted, WCW did something really stupid with him, like, during the around when Ready to Rumble came out, having him actually win the championship when no one wanted that. But I will hand it to him. Like, he actually is, in recent years even, like the last couple of years, he has gone on the indie circuit and has wrestled some pretty big indie names and, like, has actually put in the work and, like, has shown that he really respects the business. And it is a little bit of a shame that he gets shit on so much for it just because of the stint in WCW back in, like, 2000 because he has actually, like, been putting in work and showing that he loves the business. He does have a documentary coming out about himself called You Cannot Kill David Arquette. Actually, it was released back in August, and it's basically following his attempt to resurrect his wrestling career, like, 2017, 2018 till now. And I've been very curious to check it out and see what it's like. Apparently it has good reviews. I think I saw on Rotten Tomatoes as like a 90% or something. But yeah, I'm not going to lie. It's a little strange seeing him in this movie, but also I would be lying if he isn't the only one because it was also like, it kind of took me aback when I saw Neil McDonough as well. And of course, David Arquette is playing exactly who he would play in this movie as like the drugged out fuck up soldier. Yeah, and I was really only saying like it surprises me to see him so prominently billed in this movie simply from the standpoint that he's just not in a whole lot of this movie no he isn't you know it's not like he's bad in it. it's just he's not in it a whole lot i think you're right i think it was this came out in 99 yeah this is post scream and everything else like he was he was kind of popping at the time he was also dating courtney cox and that was the high profile at the time so yeah yeah i i get it but it, at the same time he's not in this movie a ton yeah i mean he does a fine job for what he's in it for so it's not a laughable casting but at yeah. the same time it is interesting that i didn't know he was billed that high because like you said he doesn't do much yeah from there we have martha's brother george played by joseph running fox he was in the avenging seems like old times geronimo's sons of anarchy as well so again that's kind of rounding out the entire crew of this fort and again i know that it's kind of hacky to do these little intros like this but this one's actually done kind of well it's to the point the editing's pretty good it's pretty fun joe and martha also while he's describing his characters he, he jokes so like they came with the fort and they never left. I was a little surprised because something I was a little worried about was them being not only just minor characters, but it not handling that well um, and sure. doing it problematically. But it, it handles it pretty well. And they have some pivotal roles, even if they stay minor characters. Yeah. Another thing I like about this scene where Hart is kind of running Boyd through all the different people at the fort and, you know, introducing him to everything. I like the detail of him being like, you see my collection of books? all these books yeah it's all the great thinkers of the world you know they're so great out here in the middle of nowhere and he goes and grabs one off the shelf he's like would you like some walnuts smash and he's like that's what these <laughs> fucking books are good for out yeah. here you know which that kind of comes back yeah. around later in the movie as well so we then have a scene where boyd recalls some further details of the event that put him in this place and we see that once the mexican soldiers discovered his seemingly dead body they stacked him in a wagon where the blood of the men above him slowly trickled into 
into his mouth for hours, and eventually he kind of just gained this sudden bout of strength and viciousness that allowed him to, like, claw his way out and take the leadership of the Mexican army by surprise and capture their positions. Single-handedly. Yeah. So the thing that the movie does well in this part is that it kind of treats it as just, like, an afterthought of just, he was just buried under these bodies. What woke him up was the blood trickling down into his face and into his mouth and just kind of out of sheer anxiety rage revenge whatever you want to call it got out of the pile of corpses and like captured everyone but later on we'll find out that there's maybe another element to this yeah shortly after boyd joins this garrison a frostbitten stranger named calhoun arrives and describes how his wagon train became lost in the mountains and uh he arrives in false jump scare yeah they're at dinner talking and all of a sudden he's in the window and they look and he's disappeared in the window that's what prompts them to go outside looking for him yeah and this is definitely like a trope of horror movies where like some rando person busts on the scene and causes confusion and disruption and everything else and just lots of panic but anyway he tells them this crazy fucking story about how their wagon train that was heading out west got completely fucked up because this guy named colonel ives promised that he would show the party a shorter route to the pacific ocean but instead led them on like a fucking wild goose chase that ended up getting them stuck in the fucking snow for three months in this cave just slowly they all starved they ate the fucking oxen they even started boiling and eating their like shoe leather and then it just got to the point where like okay somebody died well oops we ate this person and then it became oops somebody else ends up dead mysteriously dot 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 until there's only like three of us eat them too right and then it just goes downhill from there and this guy supposedly escaped because this colonel ives character just went full bananas right yeah he kills everyone but him and the wife of one of the other people in the caravan and because he's acting extremely ashamed of like you know this was such a dark moment this was a grave sin we all committed but we did it because we survived and we didn't know what else to do and then Colonel Ives went bad shit and I knew I was next so in a moment of cowardice which kind of causes Boyd to go huh he's like in a moment of cowardice I ran to look for help yeah so immediately like they're already kind of seeing similarities in each other yeah yeah so who plays him this character is played by Robert Carlyle who we've mentioned he was in Riff Raff train spotting is one of the main things that he's known for the full monty the world is not enough angela's ashes the beach he is the dad and 28 weeks later and just do yourself a favor like 28 days later is definitely kind of one of those modern redefine the zombie genre kind of classics 28 weeks later is pretty pretty fucking good as well it's one of the earlier movies in roseburn and idris elba's careers as well so that movie is definitely worth checking out and the beginning of that movie with robert carlisle is fucking insane just adrenaline inducing and terrifying the first 10 minutes of that movie are so fucking good he would also be in a lot of the castlevania games as well so robert carlisle is he this good in every thing he's in because jesus christ i think he's solid all around yeah, yeah i've never seen him in anything where he was not good i've seen him in not good movies like we've talked about but i've never not seen him not be good yeah he's awesome in this <laughs> so the 
soldiers kind of agree to act as a rescue party for any survivors. And as Boyd and Colonel Hart are leaving, George, the First Nations, again, kind of their, like, tracker expert in the area, he's trying to warn them of the Wendigo myth that anybody who consumes the flesh of their enemies gains their strength and their spirit, but then kind of essentially becomes this cursed demon with an insatiable hunger for more human flesh, right? Yeah, and the Wendigo myth, I think it did originate in the First Nations. Yeah, absolutely. It is one of those cryptid myths of not quite a skinwalker, but kind of close to where like you start off human in a way, but yeah, if you consume the flesh of others, you're cursed to basically become a sort of like abominable snowman type werewolf kind of cryptid kind of wendigos are described in lots of different ways depending on or malevolent spirits yeah it's either like the cryptid route or just straight up malevolent spirit even almost like zombie vampire in some ways yeah sometimes they're kind of a sasquatchy missing link hairy humanoid thing Sometimes they're literally like fucking deer bone demon skin hanging off of them kind of things. And sometimes it is more just a spirit, like you said. But the Wendigo is definitely like a very underutilized cryptid, in my opinion. I would love to see more movies dig into that creature. Same here. Kind of like werewolves, I would love to see. And I know there are like a couple Wendigo horror-based movies. But uh, the Wendigo I am most familiar with is the one from Marvel Comics. The one that like is... (laughs) often a hulk villain yeah he is just a bigfoot i want to say the first appearance of wolverine ever in incredible hulk was in an issue where hulk was also fighting a wendigo in the canadian tundra basically gotcha so from here they go on their journey we see a lot of great footage from the mountains and them trekking through all this miserable landscape and to their credit even though they're kind of like the back end forgotten part of the military that's kind of been banished to fort spencer to their credit like they are all pretty much like nah we gotta go save this woman if she's still alive and if she's not we have to put this guy down they are very much we're doing our duty like this is what we're trained to do this is what we're supposed to do which I was pleasantly surprised by because I was kind of expecting like this gang of misfits to drag their feet or be like oh no it's just too scary or oh that seems like a lot of work but no they get pretty motivated to like let's take care of some shit to their credit I'll also mention too that everybody from the fort does go on this mission except for dr knox he kind of stays there to hold things down like to literally hold down the fort and martha and cleaves david arquette's character they like go on a mission to get supplies so they leave in the opposite direction essentially well and really major knox is there because he uh, he's, he's just drunk, drunk. Yeah. he's just fucking drunk <laughs> yeah so from there while they're on this journey boyd kind of starts to question calhoun a little bit about his experience with cannibalism because you know he's kind of experienced the same thing that sudden rush of power and energy and just you know your eyes are opened a little bit more from that experience toffler takes a fall down the mountainside and injures himself and that night while camping to kind of give toffler some rest the men hear him crying out and discover that calhoun was licking at his wounds so they all kind of freak out calhoun immediately is just like i'm sorry i'm sorry i don't know what came over me put me in binders the rest of the trip and you know everything will be okay so they put him in handcuffs essentially they finally reach the cave that the party took refuge in they're expecting this hostile colonel ives to still be there boyd and reich go inside the cave to investigate and they discover the bloody remains of five skeletons 
mind you, this scene, this next 10 to 15 minute stretch is really where the soundtrack puts in some work. Yeah. This whole cave, like lead up to the cave and, and in the cave and then like what's about to happen while they're in the cave. This is really some like phenomenal work on the composer's part. Yeah. Damon Alburn and uh, Nyman's part. It goes through a couple themes and like it does such a good job of capturing the dread as they're making their way to the cave and about to enter the cave. And then when it needs to flip, it flips and does it drastically, but also a pr- very appropriately. And we'll get to that. I'll, I'll bring that yeah. back up once uh, we reach that scene. So this is being intercut where, again, Neil McDonough and the Guy Pierce are inside the cave and they are finding these remains, right? And they're going deeper and deeper into the cave. Well, and it should be noted, too, that while all that's happening, Calhoun outside is freaking the fuck out. It's all being <laughs> cross cut. But yeah, while the men are outside waiting, Calhoun is being fucking weird. <laughs> and it's freaking out Toffler and it's making the other guys uneasy and he is twitching and making weird noises and he eventually like runs over to the side of the cave and starts just digging at the ground like a fucking dog and kind of right when Boyd and Reich put two and two together that oh shit no there are no survivors there are five skeletons here fuck he killed them all he drug us here to kill all of us this is a trap right as they are trying to run out to warn the other guys Calhoun literally pulls a fucking knife out of the ground that he must have buried there earlier just to like have it ready he runs and stabs heart spins him around catches a fucking tomahawk in the back with him takes his gun shoots george and leaves heart to kind of bleed out and die and that's where he turns around and looks at jeremy davies who is cowering in fear points the gun at him click and then he kind of has that moment of oh shit oh shit, oh shit i love that line he says i love that moment yeah carl just looks at him and just goes run yeah <laughs> jeremy davies like takes the fuck off and starts running through the wilderness and that's where it cuts to the banjo music yeah this is where it cuts to banjo music and it is out of fucking scooby-doo and it does that flip where it is not what i expected If you had no music, this would be a genuinely like extremely terrifying scene for him. But yeah. because he's like cowering and like scrambling trying to get away and this music is playing, I laughed out loud. This was a laugh out loud yeah. moment for me. Also too, kind of something that was nice to see this kind of heel turn as well or this reveal of the villain. It's interesting in retrospect how much of this was actually planned by him yeah. and how much of it was just he knew this beast was going to bubble back up to the surface. What, what are your thoughts on that? That was something I actually wanted to ask you because I was kind of struggling with that because like later on in the movie there's a lot of evidence to point that this was all set up by him oh he totally set all this but up but yeah. there still felt like in these scenes was he acting that entire time of flipping the fuck out and be like we we need to leave right now or was there like a little bit of his humanity left kind of fighting back and being like nah, you think totally it was all a trap, trap? I, don't, yeah. I don't think that there is any real genuine humanity left in Calhoun at this point yeah. no like he, he is just full feral deep these 
people are meals to me and I'm just moving them into the kill zone just like you would maneuver animals while you're hunting them into like the right spot where you can kill them you know like it's it's the same idea oh and I, I love when he's about to shoot him with the pistol and it jams he goes I yeah. hate when that <laughs> happens so it's so annoying. annoying and then he looks at the guy and goes run and then the banjo music yeah god that yeah. scene is so fucking funny to me even though I know it's like dark as shit yeah and this is where it's just non-stop for a minute the other two in the cave they hear a lot of shouting and commotion happening outside. Plus, they just found those five skeletons. They start rushing out. Yeah, and as soon as they get outside the cave, they realize that Toffler is way off in the wilderness somewhere being chased because they just hear screams, right? Well, and they see the three dead bodies, to, or the two dead bodies as yeah. well. So Boyd and Reich start chasing after them, and eventually they discover Toffler's gutted body. Like, they just find him splayed out on a rock with his guts hanging out. And they eventually end up on a cliff where Reich is knifed. Calvin like throws a knife into his chest and then he like tumbles off this fucking cliff. And th- there's a few uh fun jump scares. Calhoun will like appear. Jump out of nowhere, yeah. Jump out of nowhere and like it is kind of at this point it could be that it's just wooded area and they're all in a panic but Calhoun is also moving at almost supernatural speeds. Yeah. He has this conditioning that doesn't seem human. Yeah. He seems to be slightly ethereal yeah boyd barely escapes he actually like shoots calhoun like dead ass in the chest just like michael myers just like jason he just sits up just straight up and just starts laughing and as he's getting up boyd kind of realizes like fuck the only way i'm getting out of this is to jump so he jumps and that's a pretty impressive stunt to see like a stunt person legitimately jumping off that cliff and calhoun even is just like wasn't expecting that holy shit yeah but he like jumps off this cliff and into a large tree to break his fall and he tumbles down through all the tree limbs and then literally like rolls down the side of the fucking mountain even smacks into Reich's bloody body all broken and they like tumble together and eventually they fall into this weird covered pit covered by a bunch of limbs and branches and dead stuff so where they're kind of hidden Boyd's leg is broken totally compound fracture fucked up Calhoun goes down to see if he can find him and you know of course the pit's kind of covered and he doesn't see him so well and there's a pretty good scare too where when they tumble down in, into like that pit and his dead body or what you think his dead body is hanging there like with the fucking tomahawk or knife still in him suddenly lunges at him and like starts choking him and then like he slowly finally dies as uh as Boyd pushes him off and so yeah he's just stuck down there with the fucking dead body yeah. just hanging there right next to him yeah so Calhoun returns to his cave to feast on the other men that he's killed and just kind of bide his time and Boyd is like you said stuck down here now with the dead body and eventually he doesn't have any other options so he fucking also eats Reich little by little so that's that I liked these cuts because it would cut back to him and cut back to Calhoun as like Calhoun is basically feasting Calhoun's like having the fucking time of his life well you don't really see him eating anybody but you see him just chilling he's just hanging out like skipping stones in the river well and... he at one point he has like a jawbone or something that he's chewing on and then he like fucking throws it yeah, off yeah, like yeah, as, yeah. as he's done with it yeah so eventually once Boyd is healed enough they also kind of imply that eating human flesh makes you 
you heal faster and you're able to take more damage and all this. It just makes you like more human than human, right? So seemingly his compound fracture fucking heals after a few days from eating Reich and he slowly limps back to the fort. You see him like just slogging through all the bad weather the whole way back. And when he gets there, he's fucking delirious and just he's fucked up. General Slauson and his men have arrived to inspect the fort, and they're like, where the fuck is everybody? He also tells Boyd, hey, Knox told us that y'all were going to rescue some people in a cave, and we sent people out there, and they didn't fucking find anything in this cave. They found the cave, but there are no bodies. There's nothing there. Like, what are y'all talking about? This seems fishy. You already have a weird history with your cowardice and deceitfulness, so we don't know, like, how trustworthy this is. Yeah, Boyd tells him about Calhoun showing up and, like, him being a cannibal and attacking everyone, and Cleves and Martha who were on the spy mission, Martha especially, like, they don't, they buy, don't buy it, especially because yeah. her brother is now dead. Yeah, so at this point, Slauson informs Boyd that there's going to be a new commander taking over the fort, Colonel Ives. And to Boyd's horror, it's fucking Calhoun, except he's cleaned up and he's now going by this Colonel Ives persona. And Colonel Ives was, in his story, was the guy who flipped out on the caravan and And killed killed everybody. And Boyd tries to convince everybody else that Ives is, in fact, the guy who killed all the other people. Even going as far as literally they ask Ives to take off his shirt to look for the musket wound where Boyd shot him, you know, and seemingly like it's all healed up there's no scars there's nothing like you said Cleves and Martha are just like yeah no like we didn't meet the guy we have no idea what he's talking about we weren't at the fort when this guy showed up this all seems sketchy Knox like you said he's a fucking drunk they ask him and he's like well I do seem to remember the gentleman having a beard yeah that's the best he can fucking remember refuses to back up Boyd Boyd is also having like insane cravings and hallucinations like there's one scene where he like hallucinates stumbling out and like savagely murdering Cleves with a knife and just blood everywhere. Right? Which did bring a smile to my face because it was uh, David Arquette <laughs> just getting brutally murdered. Yeah. And like David Arquette in the Scream series plays that like one character that somehow still lives through all the Scream movies even though you expect him to die in every single fucking one of them. <laughs> yeah. So while they're all together and you know essentially all stuck in this shitty snowy fort the tensions between Boyd and this Colonel Ives remain kind of steady until one night when they're all alone well and the fun part too is they both know that he's fucking calhoun like Uh that's the fun Uh part of it of like they both know but like there's no evidence to prove otherwise yeah and then finally one night when the both of them end up alone outside together smoking this is where the facade disappears and ives kind of like golf clap you figured it out good job nobody fucking believes you but i know you know fuck you and this is where he also kind of fully reveals yeah so i killed everybody i totally did it i was suffering from tuberculosis i could barely breathe there's a scene where he like takes in a big lung full of the night air and he's like yeah i used to not be able to do that because i had tuberculosis he's like i was sickly i had depression he had all kinds of like fucked up ailments like all the old-timey oregon trail ailments yeah and like he was getting ready to like end it all but then like on this expedition the native american guide was the one who told him about the myth of the wendigo yeah and he has that fucking line that's kind of chilling where he's just like, actually, the guide was the first. Yeah, he told me <laughs> about it and I just had to try to find out for myself. Eventually, you know, he basically says eating human flesh completely like fixed all my bullshit. My tuberculosis went away. My depression went away. You know, all these physical ailments that I had just disappeared as soon as I started doing this. 
and eventually like this conversation boils over to the point where Boyd attacks Calhoun and the others lock him up yeah Colonel Ives lets him do it lets him because this is all a fucking play like he knows that he has the upper hand in this scenario yeah while Boyd is locked up Cleves and the horses are all mysteriously killed Martha like goes into the stable and finds all the horses slaughtered and then when she goes to tell everybody Cleves' body is dead on the roof bleeding and that freaks everybody out and immediately all suspicions are on Boyd even though like he's fucking locked up so so much for what the third fourth build David Arquette like yeah yeah, killed off screen and like didn't have much to do I mean Neil McDonough was killed but I feel like Neil McDonough in the first 30 minutes or so he had more, had more to, to do, do yeah. than Arquette did. So, you know, even though, like, all the suspicions are on Boyd, he couldn't have possibly done it. But at the same time, like, there's also no way that Calhoun could have done it either. So now there's this, oh shit, what's going on? Well, Knox still blames Boyd, though, at this point. Sure, yeah, yeah. Everybody still blames Boyd, yeah. Yeah, like, Knox has this moment of clarity where he actually, like, knocks Boyd the fuck out thinking he's the one who did all this. That's, like, when they chain him up in the room, right? Yeah. So the next day as Calhoun is cooking a stew, uh, we see that Boyd is chained up in the other room and he's trying to warn Drunk Knox that Colonel Ives, rather, is actually this Calhoun character, right? But then he is killed by this kind of mysterious cloaked figure that just shows up. The way that the shot kind of works is you're seeing through, like, essentially two or three rooms and you see Calhoun and you see Knox, but then you see this third person quickly drift through the scene you know so there is somebody else there with them you only see a cape too when whenever this happens yeah. and the way it's set up is that Knox finally goes up to Boyd from Boyd talking so much as like shut the fuck up or I'm gonna knock you out again and then closes the door to the room he's chained yeah. up in and then I love the, this colorful language because Knox is talking to Ives slash Calhoun and is just like hey have you seen my sword my sword is missing it's really yeah. important to me it's normally hanging, it's normally on hanging on the wall, yeah. and while he's cookies it's like oh what you doing there and, and Kellen's like oh I'm making a do he's like oh can i help not at the moment but maybe you can help add something to it (laughs) it's just like okay bro we know what's gonna happen yeah so like you mentioned once Knox closed the door you kind of hear like you know a shuffle and a little bit of a struggle and you realize like oh he's been killed and then the door opens and you see boyd's face kind of changes to like what the fuck it is then revealed that this mystery third person that has shown up to throw a kink in things is Colonel Hart seemingly alive again. Hello, right? Boyd. Yeah. yeah. You learn that Calhoun saved Hart and was feeding him his own men in order to, like, get him as an ally. And Calhoun and him are now hopelessly addicted and they are now, like, full blown cannibals. And I do love to the, the hunger. Yeah, the hunger. I do love the detail that Hart's hair has gone from gray back to red and he's no longer wearing glasses. Yeah, because there, there's a very small touch early on when they're like going through the expedition to the cave where they're like hopping over stones in like a creek to not get water and at one point he almost trips and like oh my glasses okay they're still on my face making it sound like if he lost his glasses he'd be fucked so it's interesting that like when he shows up here like yeah he looks younger he's not wearing his glasses anymore and I just thought that was a nice little like show but don't tell sort of thing yeah it's refreshing to see that in movies that are confident that their viewers 
are going to pick up on that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, he just looks better when he shows up in this. This is where like Calhoun's master plan starts unfolding. Yeah. I also like the detail, like I mentioned earlier with the walnuts, it comes back around. At the beginning of the movie, he literally puts the walnuts on his desk and slams them with one of those giant fucking books to crush them. And essentially now that he is more human than human, I like the scene where he reaches into his desk drawer and it's like walnuts and just fucking crushes them with his fucking hand. He's like, the only difference is no books now. He's not going to miss those books. Well, that kind of goes back to the whole like, I have transcended norms and taboos and human morality and all this bullshit that he's like, all those books of all the great thinkers and philosophers, I don't need any of that shit now. Like, I'm on a new level. I've gone past the like words of dead men and all this other bullshit, you know? So that's another fun touch. Let's pause here. So for like real life influence, real life horrors, again, this is just such a fun trope of the idea of cannibalism while being like this ultimate sin allows you to transcend into like this sophisticated intelligent being but something that again go into like real life history that has been a thing in certain more like warlike societies throughout human history of sometimes conquerors would consume the flesh of fallen warriors from the enemy like the strongest of their warriors with the belief that when they were consuming their flesh they were consuming their spirit and were thus becoming stronger and more invincible in war and in combat i think there are still like cannibalistic indigenous people that um are not at all connected with the rest of the world still in existence uh certain more isolated areas in the world today but cannibalism has always been an interesting juxtaposition with being the worst sin you can commit and then also being this tool to achieve greater heights as a human being yeah so from here you know while they're butchering the body of Knox, right in which heart walks boyd outside and you just see calhoun with a butcher knife just hacking at this fucking corpse this is where calhoun like you said kind of fully reveals to boyd that he plans to use the fort as a base to like cannibalize passing travelers because again manifest destiny people are coming out west um it's just you know putting them right in the line of the meal train essentially but it's a pretty solid speech like you were saying at this point calhoun essentially like makes a deal with boyd and he's like look you can either join us or you can fucking die like at this point you know our plan so it is what it is and he stabs boyd essentially like forcing him to make the choice of look you can eat the human meat stew that we just made out of Knox and you can heal and you can be stronger and you can join us and be part of this plan or you can just fucking die and eventually he gives in and eats the stew and you just see like this transformation where Boyd goes from like on the fucking verge of death to just shoveling down this fucking stew yeah I do like uh, again you touched on this but I do like Calhoun being like hey cannibals are lonely too we need some people yeah having friends is hard when you're a cannibal (laughs) yeah so like it really really is just i want you bro like i want you to be part of our pack yeah but i know the only way you're gonna do it is if you eat or die so i gotta make you make that choice yeah so some time passes boyd heals hart eventually tells boyd that calhoun plans to convert general slauson to their cannibal way of life and get him in on this larger plan when he arrives in a few weeks essentially they want to establish this like support network of food across the frontier and again create this society free from the traditional morality and norms right conquer america with cannibalism (laughs) yeah and despite his newly discovered high-minded ideals hart still fundamentally struggles with their recent deeds right from the watchtower calhoun
Boone spots General Slauson and Martha riding toward the fort. So he knows, like, oh shit, they're on their way. Like, they'll be here pretty soon. So time to, like, get the plan going. I did, like, his line. It's it's such a good villain line because as he's, like, looking and spying to see where they're coming, when they're coming, he sees the general, Martha, and then the general has someone riding with him. He's just like, ah, lunch and dinner. Yeah. And the general <laughs> are arriving. Like, I also, too, kind of like Calhoun's because I think, what was it, the lizard in the amazing spider-man what was that that line where he's just like first the sewers then the world and it was a little bit of calhoun just being like first we turn them into cannibals and then we take over america for cannibals <laughs> that fucking movie <laughs> so yeah at this point boyd kind of convinces Hart, like yo this is fucked up i know you're having second thoughts let me go free me i will go kill calhoun and Hart finally kind of gives in and is like fuck it you're right i'm tired of living like this i can't do this cool i'll let you go but kill me just fucking kill me right now this part i did find interesting too because boy doesn't fucking hesitate he grabs the knife off the desk and walks over and just immediately slits his throat there's no discussion there's no conversation yeah. about it heart just walks to the window looks out the window and just says you gotta kill me okay cool done and i like heart being like make it quick and then yeah. boyd's like okay slits his throat and he's like looking at him choking on his own blood for a few seconds like that wasn't that quick of a death that fucking shot too where the blood squirts on to the like old-timey frosted window panes and you just see calhoun outside leaving the watchtower and heading toward that office that they're in and he sees boyd kill heart and the blood splash on the window and just him like staring malevolently inward at boyd as he's doing it and just that moment of okay motherfucker like this is how you want to play it let's do it you asshole (laughs) yeah boyd and calhoun it just immediately start fighting we have that awesome lead up where boyd's looking for calhoun yeah they're kind of stalking each other around but that's where calhoun like gears up not gears up i mean he just kind of preps himself and puts the like blood cross on his forehead the blood cross on his forehead's pretty fucking rad yeah Yeah. (laughs) that's some metal shit but yeah they both fight each other and it is just the most it's brutal (laughs) wolverine versus saber Saber kind of fight they're just both tearing into each other they're both seemingly like stronger and indestructible because of their fucking cannibal strength they're in inflicting some mortal wounds on each other but it's hurting them yeah, yeah. but they're still fighting otherwise a normal human being yeah. these wounds would put them down immediately but. yeah they're fucking like stabbing each other in the chest with pitchforks and cleavers to the fucking shoulder and shit yeah it's pretty brutal and eventually boyd knocks down the awning that falls onto calhoun traps him temporarily and boyd finds this giant fucking bear trap in one of the barns and kind of entices calhoun in and they like fall onto the bear trap together and he like mashes Calhoun's head onto the trigger plate to like you know snap it shut and then it's just the two of them in each other's arms essentially trapped in this bear trap and this bear trap by the way looks like it was meant to like fucking cut a bear in half <laughs> yes <It's huge. laughs> this is where Calhoun has some final really great solid lines <laughs> That was really sneaky. You know, if you die first, I am definitely gonna eat you. The question is, if I die, what are you gonna do? Bon appetit.
So yeah, at this point, the two guys are trapped. General Slauson returns. His guys are kind of looking around the fort, trying to figure out what happened. <laughs> the general goes in and finds the meat stew that's still simmering on the fire. It's like, ooh, yeah, this smells good, delicious. Mm. And he like kind of tastes some. Oops. So, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Martha goes to the stable and she kind of peeks through the busted up door and sees Calhoun and Boyd dying together. She sees that Boyd is still technically alive. Calhoun has now died. And she just kind of closes the door and walks backwards into the bushes, Homer style, and is just like, fuck this. And you see her kind of fleeing the fort at the yeah. end. She just kind of leaves him to die, you know? I love that not only does she leave him and start to walk away, she just nopes the fuck out completely, like, yeah. out of the fort. And it's good that she did because she's essentially closing the circle for the cannibals you know instead of letting boyd live and heal and just kind of still deal with this hunger you know just let him fucking die and be done with it and boyd to his credit chooses not to eat calhoun and lets himself die and the last shot of the movie is like the screen moving upward almost like ascending on like what looks like a giant mouth with this giant bear trap kind of clamped down on the both of them on calhoun and, and boyd as they're both dead and embraced racing each other and there's almost like this blood trail on the sides of them and almost look like wings yeah it's a great final image and cut to credits yep what would you say when was the golden age of tv really started around 2008 2009 like this age of streaming this modern golden age of tv i mean modern golden age of tv would probably be mid 2000s yeah definitively like okay we have sopranos that's kind of the first major major thing that leads into a lot of stuff and probably mid 2000s on is where it's been so i don't mean to describe this to take anything away from the medium of film or the medium of a tv series even a miniseries but ravenous felt like the best parts of a miniseries or even a full-blown tv series with multiple seasons and just took all the like everything comes to a head fucking ridiculous moments like the reveals the crazy setups and then like the crazy climaxes and just got rid of everything else and just compacted it into like this 90 so minute long movie yeah it just felt like a modern day really crazy drama tv series that is well done that you would find on hulu or netflix these days and just like included all the great parts memorable parts of that tv show and made it into one movie it was such a fun trip because we've been discussing on a couple movies that we've done more recently of what is a quote-unquote slow movie with pacing and stuff like that and ravenous is like the exact opposite of that it's not completely breakneck but it is it moves yeah it's a fast movie it's a fast tight movie that wastes no time i'm sure if and when i go back and rewatch it from time to time I, I might find some more stuff to gripe about it but like i'm still pretty high on this movie and i watched it a few days ago and this is probably one of my favorite horror movies from the 90s if not maybe my favorite depending and it's certainly my favorite horror movie just thinking of things off the top of my head from that stretch of time from like you know the late 90s into the early 2000s um which granted we probably need to revisit scream at some point because it's been a very long time since i've seen that so i might change my uh, my tune and go more towards scream or the blair witch project i've still got some 90s stuff that is off the beaten path for you 
that I think you would really dig, though. So we, yeah. we've got a lot of 90s to cover still. This feels like one of the best horror movies from the 90s, I would argue. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that you enjoyed this one. This is one that I've always liked and felt that, again, it just didn't quite ever get the credit that it deserved. You know, the cast is solid. The performances are solid. I like the kind of weird tone that it has. And when it wants to get brutal, like it gets brutal. So, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed this one. And I hope other people do, too. There's something about frontier survival stuff that I find kind of compelling, even though it's kind of miserable. The Revenant is the same way. Like, that movie is trying to be really deep in a lot of ways that it's just not that deep. But I do enjoy just the sheer, like, let's watch Leonardo DiCaprio, like, be miserable and just slog through the mud and survive. That part of it, I think, is still interesting, even though, like, it's kind of miserable to watch. Well, and I'd be lying if I said I was a little worried going into this that it would be like that it would be like that miserable slog and there are elements of that sure but the satire and the black comedy in it really helps and again Colonel Ives Calhoun that character played by Robert Carlyle is like one of the best horror villains I've seen he is incredibly memorable he has the best lines in the movie he's both funny and malicious at the same time he can turn it on into being an outright beast and then also be well-spoken and charming. Yeah. Yeah, I just, this present moment, I don't have really much bad or to critique about this movie. I really had a lot of fun with it. It was it was a very nice surprise, and I'm kind of a little bummed out that Antonia Bird, she never had other horror-related projects, and then she passed away back in 2013. Yeah. But, man, this was good. And is Robert Carlyle in any other horror movies? I mean, he's in 28 Weeks Later, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I forget he's in that. But, yeah, he... He fucking knocks it out of the park in this movie, man. I don't know what else to say. He's fucking great. Well, cool, cool. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed this one. Hopefully everybody will check it out. So that is going to be it for this episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast. Check out future episodes at uh, all the major podcatchers, including Amazon now as well. Definitely please give us a review and a star rating on Apple Podcasts specifically. Uh, that seems to be what moves the needle the most. And Podchaser too. Yes, and Podchaser. Thank you all for your continued support. We really appreciate it. We definitely appreciate all the kind words from everybody. Hopefully uh, this won't necessarily be our last episode. We'll see what kind of hellscape we're in in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Jesus Christ. We do have a very fun episode planned next that I'm not going to burst the bubble on just yet, but let's just say I think it'll be a fun experiment for sure. So we've got a fun Thanksgiving option coming for you this year, and we've got a couple of other good ones lined up for the rest of the year as well. Real quick, we should have brought this up way earlier in this episode. We chose Ravenous on purpose because, hey, cannibalism, eating meat, consuming flesh, and we're about to have Thanksgiving. We're in November now, so that we wanted this to be our first November movie. Yeah, and like again, weather, mood, just that kind of feeling. It's a, it's a good yeah. fall movie for sure. Yeah, yeah, but there's not really much to pick out of the Thanksgiving horror basket, so Ravenous is a pretty close juxtaposition, I would say. Yeah, definitely big thanks to my brother Jesse Mansfield, aka Party Gator, for doing the bumps at the beginning and the ends of every episode. Um, you can check his stuff out on Bandcamp, 
under Party Gator, Big Clown. Um, there's also some associated acts he's been involved with as well that are all linked off from there. So check him out, throw him a couple bucks, get some good music. I do not have anything coming up that I want to like throw out other than just everybody continue to be safe. We'll see kind of what the next few weeks look like for the country and for like all of us as a people. <sighs> you know, hopefully things will be moving in a better direction. Hopefully we don't have any kind of crazy situations happen, but everybody please stay safe. Please be smart. Do what you can to like be a positive influence and not trying to tear things apart. And uh, like we had said in, I think even our last episode, our Halloween episode on Hocus Pocus, you know, if you need to like get some comfort food media in your life, like it really helps. I mentioned earlier, one of my uh, recommendations was non-horror was Pen15. I started that in large part again because I, I wanted to continue watching a comedy more than anything else because like that was something that helped me kind of cope and so like even with this movie it's I think it's a ton of fun Aaron safe to say you think it's a ton of fun but if it didn't sound like it was your bag then hey do something different there's plenty of ton like goofy stupid horror shit out there we've covered a lot of it on our show Um, and even if something's non-horror hey that's good too like take care of yourself and take care of others yeah definitely all right, cool, cool. Well, that is it for this episode. Um, any final thoughts? Sally eats the flesh of another. She takes the other person's strength, absorbs their spirit. Well, naturally, she just had to try. The hunger. The hunger. <laughs> the hunger.